Section 28 of Volume 1C of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1C, Section 28 chapter thirty two part one henry the eighth the rough hand of henry seemed well adapted for rending asunder those bands by which the ancient superstition had fastened itself on the kingdom and though after renouncing the pope's supremacy and suppressing monasteries most of the political ends of reformation were already attained few people expected that he would stop at those innovations the spirit of opposition it was thought would carry him to the utmost extremities against the church of rome and lead him to declare war against the whole doctrine and worship as well as discipline of that mighty hierarchy he had formerly appealed from the pope to a general council but now when a general council was summoned to meet at mantua he previously renounced all submission to it as summoned by the pope and lying entirely under subjection to that spiritual usurper he engaged his clergy to make a declaration to the like purpose and he had prescribed to them many other deviations from ancient tenets and practices cranmer took advantage of every opportunity to carry him on this course and while Queen Jane lived, who favoured the reformers, he had, by means of her insinuation and address, been successful in his endeavours. After her death, Gardiner, who was returned from his embassy to France, kept the king more in suspense, and by feigning unlimited submission to his will, was frequently able to guide him to his own purposes. Fox, bishop of hereford had supported cranmer in his schemes for a more thorough reformation but his death made way for the promotion of bonner who though he had hitherto seemed a furious enemy to the court of rome was determined to sacrifice everything to present interest and had joined the confederacy of gardiner and the partisans of the old religion gardiner himself it was believed had secretly entered into measures with the pope and even with the emperor and in concert with these powers he endeavoured to preserve as much as possible the ancient faith and worship henry was so much governed by passion that nothing could have retarded his animosity and opposition against rome but some other passion which stopped his career and raised him new objects of animosity though he had gradually since the commencement of his scruples with regard to his first marriage been changing the tenets of that theological system in which he had been educated he was no less positive and dogmatical in the few articles which remained to him than if the whole fabric had continued entire and unshaken and though he stood alone in his opinion the flattery of courtiers had so inflamed his tyrannical arrogance that he thought himself entitled to regulate by his own particular standard 
the religious faith of the whole nation the point on which he chiefly rested his orthodoxy happened to be the real presence that very doctrine in which among the numberless victories of superstition over common sense her triumph is the most signal and egregious all departure from this principle he held to be heretical and detestable and nothing he thought would be more honourable for him than while he broke off all connections with the roman pontiff to maintain in this essential article the purity of the catholic faith there was one lambert a schoolmaster in london who had been questioned and confined for unsound opinions by archbishop warham but upon the death of that prelate and the change of councils at court he had been released not terrified with the danger which he had incurred he still continued to promulgate his tenets and having heard dr taylor afterwards bishop of lincoln defend in a sermon the corporal presence he could not forbear expressing to taylor his dissent from that doctrine and he drew up his objections under ten several heads taylor communicated the paper to dr barnes who happened to be a lutheran and who maintained that though the substance of bread and wine remained in the sacrament yet the real body and blood of christ were there also and were in a certain mysterious manner incorporated with the material elements by the present laws and practices barnes was no less exposed to the stake than lambert yet such was the persecuting rage which prevailed that he determined to bring this man to condign punishment because of their common departure from the ancient faith he had dared to go one step farther than himself he engaged taylor to accuse lambert before cranmer and latimer who whatever their private opinion might be on these points were obliged to conform themselves to the standard of orthodoxy established by henry when lambert was cited before these prelates they endeavoured to bend him to a recantation and they were surprised when instead of complying he ventured to appeal to the king the king not displeased with an opportunity where he could at once exert his supremacy and display his learning accepted the appeal and resolved to mix in a very unfair manner the magistrate with the disputant public notice was given that he intended to enter the lists with the schoolmaster scaffolds were erected in westminster hall for the accommodation of the audience henry appeared on his throne accompanied with all the ensigns of majesty the prelates were placed on his right hand the temporal peers on his left the judges and most eminent lawyers had a place assigned them behind the bishops the courtiers of greatest distinction behind the peers and in the midst of this splendid assembly was produced the unhappy lambert who was required to defend his opinions against his royal antagonist the bishop of chichester opened the conference by saying that lambert being charged with heretical pravity had appealed from his bishop to the king as if he expected more favour from this application 
and as if the king could ever be induced to protect a heretic that though his majesty had thrown off the usurpations of the see of rome had disincorporated some idle monks who lived like drones in a beehive had abolished the idolatrous worship of images had published the bible in english for the instruction of all his subjects and had made some lesser alterations which every one must approve of yet was he determined to maintain the purity of the catholic faith and to punish with the utmost severity all departure from it and that he had taken the present opportunity before so learned and grave an audience of convincing lambert of his errors but if he still continued obstinate in them he must expect the most condign punishment after this preamble which was not very encouraging the king asked lambert with stern countenance what his opinion was of christ's corporal presence in the sacrament of the altar and when lambert began his reply with some compliment to his majesty he rejected the praise with disdain and indignation he afterwards pressed lambert with arguments drawn from scripture and the schoolmen the audience applauded the force of his reasoning and the extent of his erudition cranmer seconded his proofs by some new topics gardiner entered the lists as a support to cranmer tonstall took up the argument after gardiner stokesley brought fresh aid to tonstall six bishops more appeared successively in the field after stokesley and the disputation if it deserve the name was prolonged for five hours till lambert fatigued confounded browbeaten and abashed was at last reduced to silence the king then returning to the charge asked him whether he were convinced and he proposed as a concluding argument this interesting question whether he were resolved to live or to die lambert who possessed that courage which consists in obstinacy replied that he cast himself wholly on his majesty's clemency the king told him that he would be no protector of heretics and therefore if that were his final answer he must expect to be committed to the flames cromwell as vice-regent pronounced the sentence against him lambert whose vanity had probably incited him in the more to persevere on account of the greatness of this public appearance was not daunted by the terrors of the punishment to which he was condemned his executioners took care to make the sufferings of a man who had personally opposed the king as cruel as possible he was burned at a slow fire his legs and thighs were consumed to the stumps and when there appeared no end of his torments some of the guards more merciful than the rest lifted him on their halberts and threw him into the flames where he was consumed while they were employed in this friendly office he cried aloud several times none but christ none but christ and these words were in his mouth when he expired some few days before this execution 
four dutch anabaptists three men and a woman had faggots tied to their backs at paul's cross and were burned in that manner and a man and a woman of the same sect and country were burned in smithfield it was the unhappy fate of the english during this age that when they labored under any grievance they had not the satisfaction of expressing redress from parliament on the contrary they had reason to dread each meeting of that assembly and were then sure of having tyranny converted into law and aggravated perhaps with some circumstance which the arbitrary prince and his ministers had not hitherto devised or did not think proper of themselves to carry into execution this abject servility never appeared more conspicuously than in a new parliament which the king now assembled and which if he had been so pleased might have been the last that ever sat in england but he found them two useful instruments of dominion ever to entertain thoughts of giving them a total exclusion the Chancellor opened the Parliament by informing the House of Lords that it was His Majesty's earnest desire to extirpate from his kingdom all diversity of opinion in matters of religion, and as this undertaking was, he owned, important and arduous, he desired them to choose a committee from among themselves who might draw up certain articles of faith and communicate them afterwards to the Parliament. The lords named the vicar-general Cromwell, now created peer, the archbishops of Canterbury and York, the bishops of Durham, Carlisle, Worcester, Bath and Wells, Bangor and Ely. The house might have seen what a hopeful task they had undertaken. This small committee itself was agitated with such diversity of opinion that it could come to no conclusion. The Duke of Norfolk then moved in the House that since there were no hopes of having a report from the committee, the articles of faith intended to be established should be reduced to six, and a new committee be appointed to draw an act with regard to them. As this peer was understood to speak the sense of the King, his motion was immediately complied with, and after a short prorogation the bill of the six articles or the bloody bill as the protestants justly termed it was introduced and having passed the two houses received the royal assent in this law the doctrine of the real presence was established the communion in one kind the perpetual obligation of vows of chastity the utility of private masses the celibacy of the clergy and the necessity of auricular confession the denial of the first article with regard to the real presence subjected the person to death by fire and to the same forfeiture as in cases of treason and admitted not the privilege of abjuring an unheard-of severity and unknown to the inquisition itself the denial of any of the other five articles even though recanted was punishable by the forfeiture of goods and chattels and imprisonment during the king's pleasure an obstinate adherence to error or a relapse was adjudged to be felony and punishable with death 
the marriage of priests was subjected to the same punishment. Their commerce with women was, on the first offence, forfeiture and imprisonment, on the second, death. The abstaining from confession and from receiving the Eucharist at the accustomed times subjected the person to fine and to imprisonment during the king's pleasure, and if the criminal persevered after conviction, he was punishable by death and forfeiture, as in cases of felony. Commissioners were to be appointed by the king for inquiring into these heresies and irregular practices, and the criminals were to be tried by a jury. The king, in framing this law, laid his oppressive hand on both parties, and even the Catholics had reason to complain that the friars and nuns, though dismissed their convent, should be capriciously restrained to the practice of celibacy. But as the Protestants were chiefly exposed to the severity of the statute, the misery of adversaries, according to the usual maxims of party, was regarded by the adherents to the ancient religion as their own prosperity and triumph. Cranmer had the courage to oppose this bill in the house, and though the king desired him to absent himself, he could not be prevailed on to give this proof of compliance. Henry was accustomed to Cranmer's freedom and sincerity, and being convinced of the general rectitude of his intentions, gave him an unusual indulgence in this particular, and never allowed even a whisper against him. That prelate, however, was now obliged, in obedience to the statute, to dismiss his wife, the niece of Osiander, a famous divine of Nuremberg, and Henry, satisfied with this proof of submission, showed him his former countenance and favour. Latimer and Shaxton threw up their bishoprics on account of the law, and were committed to prison. The Parliament having thus resigned all their religious liberties, proceeded to an entire surrender of their civil, and without scruple or deliberation they made, by one act, a total subversion of the English constitution. They gave to the king's proclamation the same force as to a statute enacted by Parliament, and to render the matter worse, if possible, they framed this law as if it were only declaratory and were intended to explain the natural extent of royal authority. The preamble contains that the king had formerly set forth several proclamations which forward persons had wilfully contemned, not considering what a king by his royal power may do, that this license might encourage offenders not only to disobey the laws of Almighty God, but also to dishonour the king's most royal majesty, who may full ill bear it, that sudden emergencies often occur, which require speedy remedies, and cannot await the slow assembling and deliberations of Parliament, and that, though the king was empowered by his authority derived from God to consult the public good on these occasions, yet the opposition of refractory subjects might push him to extremity and violence. For these reasons the Parliament, that they might remove all occasion of doubt, 
ascertained by a statute this prerogative of the crown and enabled his majesty with the advice of his council to set forth proclamations enjoining obedience under whatever pains and penalties he should think proper and these proclamations were to have the force of perpetual laws what proves either a stupid or a wilful blindness in the parliament even after this statute to maintain some limitations in the government and they enacted that no proclamation should deprive any person of his lawful possessions liberties inheritances privileges franchises nor yet infringe any common law or laudable custom of the realm they did not consider that no penalty could be inflicted on the disobeying of proclamations without evading some liberty or property of the subject and that the power of enacting new laws joined to the dispensing power then exercised by the crown amounted to a full legislative authority it is true the kings of england had always been accustomed from their own authority to issue proclamations and to exact obedience to them and this prerogative was no doubt a strong symptom of absolute government but still there was a difference between a power which was exercised on a particular emergence and which must be justified by the present expedience or necessity and an authority conferred by a positive statute which could no longer admit of control or limitation could any act be more opposite to the spirit of liberty than this law it would have been another of the same parliament they passed an act of attainder not only against the marquis of exeter the lords montacute darcy hussey and others who had been legally tried and condemned but also against some persons of the highest quality who had never been accused or examined or convicted the violent hatred which henry bore to cardinal pole had extended itself to all his friends and relations and his mother in particular the countess of salisbury had on that account become extremely obnoxious to him she was also accused of having employed her authority with her tenants to hinder them from reading the new translation of the bible of having procured bulls from rome which it is said had been seen at coudray her country seat and of having kept a correspondence with her son the cardinal but henry found either that these offences could not be proved or that they would not by law be subjected to such severe punishments as he desired to inflict upon her he resolved therefore to proceed in a more summary and more tyrannical manner and for that purpose he sent cromwell who was but too obsequious to his will to ask the judges whether the parliament could attaint a person who was forthcoming without giving him any trial or citing him to appear before them the judges replied that it was a dangerous question and that the high court of parliament ought to give the example to inferior courts of proceeding according to justice no inferior court could act in that arbitrary manner and they thought that the parliament never would being pressed to give a more explicit answer 
they replied that if a person were attainted in that manner, the attainder could never afterwards be brought in question, but must remain good in law. Henry learned by this decision that such a method of proceeding, though directly contrary to all the principles of equity, was yet practicable, and this being all he was anxious to know, he resolved to employ it against the Countess of Salisbury. Cromwell showed to the House of Peers a banner, on which were embroidered the five wounds of Christ, the symbol chosen by the northern rebels, and this banner, he affirmed, was found in the Countess's house. No other proof seems to have been produced in order to ascertain her guilt. The Parliament, without further inquiry, passed a bill of attainder against her, and they involved in the same bill, without any better proof as far as appears, Gertrude, Marchioness of Exeter, Sir Adrian Fortescue, and Sir Thomas Dingley. These two gentlemen were executed. The Marchioness was pardoned and survived the King. The Countess received a reprieve. The only beneficial act passed this session was that by which the Parliament confirmed the surrender of the monasteries. Yet even this act contains much falsehood, much tyranny, and, were it not that all private rights must submit to public interest, much justice and iniquity. The scheme of engaging the abbots to surrender their monasteries had been conducted, as may easily be imagined, with many invidious circumstances. Arts of all kinds had been employed. Every motive that could work on the frailty of human nature had been set before them, and it was with great difficulty that these dignified conventuals were brought to make a concession, which most of them regarded as destructive of their interests, as well as sacrilegious and criminal in itself. Three abbots had shown more constancy than the rest, the abbots of Colchester, Reading, and Glastonbury, and in order to punish them for their opposition and make them an example to others, means had been found to convict them of treason. They had perished by the hand of the executioner, and the revenue of the convents had been forfeited. Besides, though none of these violences had taken place, the king knew that a surrender made by men who were only tenants for life would not bear examination, and he was therefore resolved to make all sure by his usual expedient, an act of Parliament. In the preamble to this act, the Parliament asserts that all surrenders made by the abbots had been without constraint, of their own accord, and according to due course of common law. And in consequence, the two houses confirm the surrenders, and secure the property of the abbey lands to the king and his successors forever. It is remarkable that all the mitred abbots still sat in the House of Peers, and that none of them made any protests against this injurious statute. In this session, the rank of all the great officers of state was fixed. Cromwell, as vice-regent, had the precedency assigned him above all of them. 
it was thought singular that a blacksmith's son for he was no other should have place next the royal family and that a man possessed of no manner of literature should be set at the head of the church as soon as the act of the six articles had passed the catholics were extremely vigilant in informing against offenders and no less than five hundred persons were in a little time thrown into prison but cromwell who had not had interest enough to prevent that act was able for the present to elude its execution seconded by the duke of suffolk and chancellor audley as well as by cranmer he remonstrated against the cruelty of punishing so many delinquents and he obtained permission to set them at liberty the uncertainty of the king's humour gave each party an opportunity of triumphing in its turn no sooner had henry passed this law which seemed to inflict so deep a wound on the reformers and he granted a general permission for every one to have the new translation of the bible in his family a concession regarded by that party as an important victory end of section twenty eight chapter thirty two part one